You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM, community radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. We're digging into stories of food, radical love, and creative social justice. This episode of The Table Underground is a little different than most. It's a compilation of 12 short stories I gathered from amazing people across the state of Connecticut. These stories touch on the topics of community, racism, justice, and education, and were recorded in 2018 as part of an interactive mixed-media exhibit called Storyscape. This exhibit was created to commemorate the 25th anniversary of the William Casper Graustein Memorial Fund. I was part of a small team of artist-activists, including Hanifa Naya Washington and Suri Seymour, who worked with the fund to create six events around the state to both celebrate people for their hard work on the ground and invite them to share stories they thought it was important for other people to hear. At these events, people were welcome to share their stories in many formats, including video, audio, poetry, and writing. I held down the audio recordings and turned any little space I could find, like a closet, a basement stair landing, and little rooms and libraries, into pop-up recording studios. It was an honor and joy to sit with mostly strangers and get intimate real quick, as people shared not just their work, but also the emotional side of what it takes to deal with racism, to work for systemic change, and to create joyous life and community. There are gems of wisdom throughout each story, ways that people are manifesting their life learnings in the world that no doubt will speak to each of us differently. I hold deep love for each of these people from this process of sitting with them and then playing their stories over and over in my headphones as I did the editing. I hope that you are at I hope that you are impacted by what they have to say and that it helps you to feel a sense of connection with someone new or have an insight into their experiences or ways of working that's meaningful to you. One technical note. In some of these stories, people mention the Graustein Fund or initiatives they supported, such as Child First, the Discovery Initiative, or local organizing work to end racism and poverty. I'm not airing these stories to promote the work of the Memorial Fund. They're being aired because of the value of hearing people's stories and learnings directly from them and in their own words. My name is Chime Morales-James, and I am founder of My Reflection Matters. My Reflection Matters is an organization where we provide educational programming classes that are culturally relevant. I'm a homeschooler, or really an unschooler, and so I started it because out of need. It's as a woman of color who homeschools and uh, and I think this is not just the state of Connecticut, it's, it's a struggle finding other people of color that are unschooling like ourselves. And so I was trying to build community. And through that, I was also struggling to find classes and programming that spoke or that centered um, the perspectives of black and brown folks. And so I thought, well, if I can't find them, I just, I, I'm an educator, I can do this, you know, or find the right people to do this. And so um, I've begun to develop some programming. We started with the arts because the arts are just my passion. And I have some pretty artistic family members. So I said, well, come on, let's do this family thing and let's start doing some culturally relevant art programming um, with some homeschoolers. And then we had some after-schoolers who were liking what we were doing and said, can you come and do this with our you know, public school kids too? There's a lot of reasons why we chose to homeschool, even though I never thought I would, um, but that's because I had sort of this colonized mind of what schooling you know, needed to look like. Um, but it really came out of frustration that we couldn't really rely on any of the both public and private educational institutions in our area 
they didn't center our children. You know, the curriculum was very whitewashed. Um, and we felt our kids were not going to be raised by educators that were interested in their liberation. And so we knew that if we were really wanted our kids to be socially liberated, that it was going to take us, my husband and I, to do that. And, and the community that we're building here in Connecticut to do that. Unschooling really is a form of self-directed learning, to put it simply. The idea that you don't really need a formal curriculum or tools to teach kids. Um, learning is a human, natural human instinct. We were born to learn because out of survival, and um, we don't actually have to force it in the way that traditional schools force learning. Kids, when they find a purpose, they find their passion, then they use their passion. Their passion drives the learning naturally. So like, for example, you can have a child who is struggling to read. And for me, equity is, well, all kids, you know, we try to meet kids where they're at. So a child who's struggling to read, I'm going to provide them whatever supports or interventions they need to get there. And those supports might look different than a child who may not be struggling. Um, so you provide, you know, the, the boxes, right? You provide them the, the supports and interventions. But it doesn't mean that you've changed anything about the system or the way we're teaching kids or the curriculum to do that. So you could still be doing all of that within a system that perpetuates racism and white supremacy. Um, and that to me isn't liberation. Liberation is being able to find ways to get rid of boundaries and find ways to really uh, challenge systems of oppression and to work together to figure out, well, how, how do we begin to change those systems of oppression? And I don't think equity always does that. My name is Deltra Kramer. I work with My Reflection Matters and CT Home Education. My Reflection Matters is a national organization just because it's online based. It's a website where we provide resources that represent black and brown people, all people of color, from toys and games to books. Story I'd like to share how this all became important to me was I've always been really interested in history and culture, arts. When I became a mother and when I decided that I was going to home educate especially, it was important to me that my children would see the African-American side of them represented. My children are biracial and when we first started our home educating journey, we lived in Idaho and <laughs> obviously we did not see <laughs> ourselves reflected very much. Only one of my children has ever attended school, and that's my oldest. She went to preschool. And our experience just in preschool, it wasn't that the people were, you know, just blatantly racist. We just dealt with a lot of her not being represented, with a lot of little issues like a complaint about her hair. She would wear big curly afro puffs that we loved and she loved, until one day her teacher pulled me aside and asked if I could straighten her hair and please don't bring her to school again with the afro hair because it was distracting. So the next day, I brought her to school rocking the biggest afro puff <laughs> that I could achieve. <laughs> um, I was not about to compromise or just give in to that. And in fact, I realized that if we were going to be in that environment, I was going to have to step up and my older sister encouraged me. You're going to have to talk to the teacher, maybe come in and read some children's books to the kids so they understand because my daughter was getting questions like, why is your 
your mommy black because she was very fair-skinned biracial person and people would ask her that when they would see me and at first I just didn't want to deal with that so I was happy to pull her out of school but I realized that even the curriculums were whitewashed outside of the school and so that began a journey for me personally to kind of piece together books that would allow me to tell people of color's stories and when I met Cheme we decided to link up as local home educators because we were having the same issue and we created a group on Facebook called My Reflection Matters and CT Home Education and we discovered that there were lots of black and brown home educators who were feeling the same way. I think seeing our group also empowered black and brown people who were not home educating just seeing themselves in the community it helped them to know we are there it's been quite a journey. My children, it's been amazing, and it's something that I love to see and think about. Their experience has been so different from mine because I've had this clean slate where nothing was poured into them. They don't know history any different from how I have chosen to teach it to them. So I'm just thankful for that. They haven't been taught a ton of things that they'll have to unlearn as adults. I try to imagine just how amazing it's going to be for them to grow up with all this truth inside of them and without all of these inaccuracies and feeling like they don't see themselves represented. My name is Ben Saldana. I am with Creative Youth Productions. I joined Creative Youth Productions in 2008. I just remember joining at a pivotal time of my life and I was becoming myself. It took me joining the program for me to really realize that self-expression was very important and embracing who I was was key. I joined as a shy kid, really unaware of what I wanted to do. And between struggles with family, struggles with myself, struggles with a sexuality that I wasn't sure about yet, I think that Creative Youth Productions really brought everything together for me and made me more aware of my surroundings, made me more aware of myself and what my talents were and really what the possibilities could be for me if I really took that initiative. They provided a platform for me where it was a safe space. It was a judgment-free zone. It was a place where adults gave you that torch, right, and let them take it and do what they wanted to do and not be afraid to do what they wanted to do. A place where you didn't really have to think about the circumstances you were dealing with. Really, judgment didn't exist and segregation didn't exist and racism wasn't a thing and poverty didn't matter. It was somewhere where I knew if I was there, it was my escape. It was my support. It was my love. It was my passion, my friends. Everything was there. To feel like I had a place to go to like that, you know, I will always be grateful for. And it's only right that I continue to elevate youth and give them that same opportunity the youth have something important to say. And if their voices aren't elevated, then nothing will change. We're supposed to be training our youth to become the people of tomorrow. And if we don't do that now, what will tomorrow actually look like? I became a youth leader faster than I ever thought I could. I remember crying to myself in the bathroom when I was chosen. Um, <laughs> nobody knows that, but I guess they will now. <laughs> um, and then ultimately becoming a staff member and going from being educated to educating. And I think that growth in our community is significant. And our youth really need to learn to take that initiative and learn that they are empowered and that they are cared for. That I'm eternally grateful to have been giving a platform that really truly elevates me to become my best self. And whenever I really put my heart into something, the possibilities are indefinitely endless.
My name is Jamila Prince-Stewart, and I am the Executive Director of Faith Acts for Education right here in Bridgeport. We are people of faith, building power to get our children the education they deserve. And we organize churches in Bridgeport to improve education. So we work with pastors, parents, educators, and ask them what they want to change in education in their community. And we take them through an organizing cycle to help them realize those changes. We exist to dismantle systems and to shift balances of power in favor of low-income parents making their own decisions for their kids' education. And so for the parents that we work with, like, yes, it's about their kids, but it's about their kids seeing their parents fight for them, right? And to me, if I think about my own experience, I went to great schools, I've had great experiences, but like the most important thing for me as a child was I saw my mom fight for me. I saw her fight for me. You know, and that changed my life. And that's why I do what I do. So we really deeply care about the outcomes and and what we're able to accomplish. But we care like the what, but we care so much about how we do it. We don't want to do things to people. We want to do things with people. And it's just a firm belief that the best ideas are already in Bridgeport. And the people who care most about the children of Bridgeport are already in Bridgeport. People often have good intentions wanting to come in and shift communities, right? But I've seen people get toppled over in the process. And ironically, the very thing they're coming in to do to shift and change, they're like perpetuating that thing. There's an inherent privilege of understanding terms around social justice and equity and systems of oppression, right? I learned all that in college. I got that language in college at Yale. So if I'm trying to act like I'm down because I know how to say it all, I got that at (laughs) one of the whitest, wealthiest, most problematic institutions, right? But I got access to that and there's an inherent privilege of that. We have to make sure we understand that at the surface level, like language and barriers around language and how people say things is not all that it's about, right? There are times and places to have those conversations but it is our job to dig deeper. My name is Ingrid Kennedy, and I am with the State Education Resource Center, or CERC. CERC is a quasi-public entity that provides supports to the State Department of Education and specifically to the State Board of Education. And we have been in existence since 1969. Our vision is equity, excellence, and education. And our mission is to provide resources, professional development, training to educators, administrators, teachers, communities, as it relates to everything education. So we believe as an organization that educators, in order to be able to provide the access to the students, they need to know exactly who they are and what they bring into the classroom when they are teaching, when they are reaching a family, when they're speaking with a family. We are who we are first. We teach who we are first. And that's what we always focus on, a culturally responsive and conscious approach of education. What does it mean for me as an educator teaching 25 children that come from different communities, different cultures, different languages? How do I ensure that I am providing an education that they have the opportunity to really receive, understand, but also know that I am part of the learning environment? So that's how we, CERC, provide the supports. And we do it through a very comprehensive approach. But at the center of everything that we do is equity. CERC puts together an annual conference. We call it Dismantling Systemic Racism. 
through some of the training that we have done, an administrator shared with me how now they are more conscious about the decisions that they make about every single student that come before them. If there is a behavior that is happening, now this particular administrator just asks more questions specifically to the student, not the behavior. We position individuals to become racially conscious. Racially conscious not only about self, but racially conscious about the environment, racially conscious about the policies, racially conscious about the structures, racially conscious about the philosophies that they are implementing in schools. What we try to do is when the decision that is going to be made is going to be impacting the lives of children and families. So is the question, who's missing? And if that perspective is not there, am I conscious enough to bring forward that perspective? And if I'm not what I need to do in order to make sure that that happens. The reality is I cannot become racially conscious if I do not understand who I am. So that's how we always enter into any training facilitation that we do. It's got to be about self. So one of the, the first challenges is debunking the myth of I do not see color. The reality is without intent or malice, because when an educator say, I do not see color, you know that it's coming from a good place. So we need to support them to center themselves and letting them know we're going to take that statement apart. The reality is we need to see color because we all have it. So when we talk about color, we know it's about race and we all have a race. <laughs> White is also a race. So we need to understand that by the fact that you said you do not see color, you're already discounting who I am. When you say, I don't see color, you're telling me I'm invisible before you. That is the first thing. And it's challenging because it comes from a place that I want to treat every single one of my students the same. But the reality is we need to differentiate as how we come before our children because we're all different. We're unique. We're peculiar. We all have our our own thing about ourselves. So understanding that, and that is one of the, the, the challenges. That should not hinder that interaction and relationship we happened with every single one of our children. So how do we support our educators to be racially conscious by understanding that they're also part of this racial dynamic and they bring that into the classroom. We teach who we are and that's what the children see. My name is Jamal Jemerson. I'm the uh, founder and executive director of Minority Inclusion Project. We're a nonprofit organization based out of Manchester. We work statewide. Our focus is on trying to create pathways to leadership within the social sector for people of color. Really, it's about trying to address the internal inequity that keeps people of color out of nonprofit leadership, but also being able to really cultivate pipelines of really dope dynamic leaders that should be in the spaces that they should be in and have a lot to offer to the conversation, whether it's at the staff level or at the board level for most of these organizations. So I've been working in a space now in the social sector for about 20 years. And interestingly enough, I was the like only brother in a lot of these spaces that I was in. And I've worked in organizations in Bridgeport, New Haven, and Hartford. What I learned over the years was that a lot of the white leadership in these organizations were very content. The thing that I learned in talking to folks about this issue was that they would say it's a sourcing problem. We need to find more people of color. So they would always come to me and be like, hey, do you know people? And that seems to be the formula. You're trying to get somebody to give you an inroads. And I think that the issue is bigger than recruitment. And in the research that I did around the issue, I learned that, you know, really it's a dual focus. And in, in part, it's 
addressing inequity and part of it is is building this pipeline but the real impetus for a lot of these folks to come to us is because the community foundations they've been threatening to pull funding uh, or to not provide funding at all if boards are not diverse and then we learn that, you know, 90% of boards in this country are primarily led by white board chairs and 89% of nonprofit organizations are led by white CEOs and executive directors. The first question people usually ask is like, how can we get more diversity? And my response is that in order to achieve your diversity goals, you're going to have to really look at your internal systems and you're going to have to shift and become a more inclusive culture. You're going to have to build in a, a culture of equity and accountability. And if you do this, go on this journey, then you're going to achieve your diversity goals. You can't have your diversity until you're willing to do the real work. I look at um, the change work like it, it exists in a pyramid where at the bottom layer of that pyramid is like self-awareness work, right? Like white people have to work on their stuff. Call me after y'all done did some priming and y'all got a little bit more woke. And then we can talk about the strategy, the what you do to shift your cultures, your institutions, right? We're not interested in tokenism. We don't want to just put people in place just to have them there. We really want to hold organizations accountable for doing this work. I have conversations with, with white board members who are clearly racist. In 2018, I'm having conversations with white men in Manchester who are telling me that the only reason why they want to work with my organization is because they need to get grant money. So they've even washed that whole concept down to just being about money. One specific dude I'm thinking of, his cat was like, in front of one of the foundation reps, he said, in order for me to get your money, I gotta get his diversity. So I say to him in front of the same guy, I mean more to you than just a, my skin color, right? And he responds, yeah, you're tall and charismatic too. Racism is real. The truth is that I grew up in, in New York in the 80s and the 90s, and my lens around racism and racial trauma was framed from those experiences to wanna broadly uh, Michael Griffin, Michael Stewart, Eleanor Bumpers, Yusef Hawkins. These things are, are burned into like my mind. Like I think I've been traumatized by those experiences and it wasn't even that I needed to be directly involved. My trauma around dealing with this was deep, but it also helped me to develop sort of a, a callousness that protects me from absorbing too much of this stuff. I think the way I take care of myself is just by going harder. So when I'm faced with those kind of moments and I'm feeling, ouch, I go harder. It's weird. It's really weird, but I look at my people in these spaces and I see the suffering. When we speak up, we get shut out. If we play along, we take it home, we don't sleep at night. Fact. So that's why like, I go so hard. You're listening to WNHH 103.5 FM Community Radio in New Haven, Connecticut. This is The Table Underground, and I'm your host, Tegan Engel. Today's episode is a compilation of stories from people across Connecticut that were gathered as part of the Graustein Memorial Fund's 25th anniversary year. They were selected from a larger group of stories included in Storyscape, a mixed-media exhibit exploring the landscape of education, justice, and community from around the state. My name is Beverly Lawrence, and I'm with the Middletown Racial Justice Coalition. My name is Diana Martinez, and I'm here with the Racial Justice Coalition. Hi, my name is Precious Price, and I am here with the Middletown Racial Justice Coalition as well. 
So the Racial Justice Coalition is made up of about 200 folks who either work or live in Middletown. And it's all about just achieving equity and breaking down systems of racism in Middletown. There's a lot of racism going on in the schools, but nobody wants to address it or talk about it. As black and brown people, we weren't being heard. I'm raising two brown girls, one, you know, much more... um, white passing than the other in a school system that's not equipped to teach them their history or um, tell them about themselves or how to navigate the world in their skin. If I can give a quick story, I would say that one of our kids said that there was this big thing um, about one of the SRO officers calling the kid the N-word in the middle of the hallway. And a whole ton of kids heard it and they were like, what the hell? Like, what is this? Is nobody, nobody's going to address this? And instead of anybody addressing it, the teachers were just like, no, go back to class. You shouldn't be out here anyway. Um, and kind of made it about more about the students not doing what they should be doing rather than this man just blatantly use a racist term in the middle of the hallway. I see this group as um, a partner, but also a watchdog for institutions like the school system or our city government. So I would say that the superintendent is working with us because he knows that we are one of the major reasons why he was hired. Like, <laughs> so once he got here, he saw us as an ally where I don't think the, the superintendent before him did see us as an ally. So it was we were right there at the table with him as soon as he came in. And, and we've we've not been pushed away from the table yet. Also, he's the first black superintendent. So of all of all the superintendents we've had in Middletown, he's the first one. So, yes. It's hard to be going into spaces um, mostly filled with white people and and having to always be the black person in the room to say something. It's very exhausting as a person of color to be in white-centered spaces. So when we go to things about equity, um, when we go to these board meetings for the schools and things of that nature, yes, they are talking about equity, but it's still from a white standpoint. And so I have to always be the person to be like, can we center the people that we're talking about? Can we center the people that we're talking? And it's really exhausting. I think working with Graustein has been the first time that I've worked with a funding partner that has thought critically about equity or race or shifting focus or thinking about who they're funding based on what the actual problem is and not just throwing a program at an existing systemic issue. Well, I would say the biggest impact for me is the people in this room. I love these women to death. The things that I'm trying to give to other folks or the things that I feel like I can offer to other folks through this coalition is exactly what I get from them. Healing, it's love, it's compassion, it's all of the things that I think that I need to thrive. I've been here in Middletown for 13 years and this is really the first time that I can say that I found my people and my community and built a sisterhood in particular uh, with, with other women of color that is meaningful to me. My name is Betsy Morgan. Middletown was one of the eight child-first communities all the way back starting something like in 92 or 93. And I was part of that original application. 
That was the beginning of the, the Middlesex Coalition for Children. Our work with Child First enabled us to really get that off the ground, and that was 26 years ago, and it is going strong. It, uh, ha- it has a lot of accomplishments to its uh, credit. What was successful is that we were involving people at all levels, from kind of community leaders to people in the neighborhoods. And somehow we were able to blend that together to make it work. And we were really focused on building community institutions, on making progress in one way or another. In spite of all our efforts, it tended to be agency-dominated. I described it as... uh, wonderful, well-intentioned white women were doing this work, right? And with some participation, but not not anything like representative participation from the whole community. We just were not as successful as, at that as we meant to be. For one thing, we held meetings during the workday when uh, al- almost uniformly when the professionals could come. They built it into their workday. It became part of their work. And that was a reason why it was so successful, why we were able to build programs and move things forward, is that it got incorporated into the work of the agencies. But that also meant that community members were not coming on. We did do some work in the evenings, especially on goal setting. And we learned a lot about how to do that And we could have done a lot more if the support had been there. Well, it was expensive. When we were doing our community plan uh, later on during the discovery process, uh, we ran a series of, I think, six community meetings in neighborhoods or housing projects. And we hired two community organizers who were from those neighborhoods to lead it. I did an absolutely superb job at uh, persuading people to come and running the meetings, but it was just an awful lot of work. It was really a lot of work and cost us, I think, you know, in just out-of-pocket costs, something like $15,000 to do just those six meetings. I would have loved to keep them going because what we learned from those meetings is that the people in the neighborhoods knew a lot more about what the agencies were doing and how they operated than than we did. You know, it just absolutely knew a lot more than we did. And <laughs> it was so exciting. And I could see that a long-term structure that allowed that knowledge and intimate knowledge to be harvested would be of enormous benefit. But we just didn't have a way to uh, to do it. In some ways, I've undergone a similar evolution, I would say, (laughs) because, I mean, I'm 79, but I'm putting my major energies now into our Racial Justice Coalition, which is receiving Graustein support. And I think that I came to the realization that all the work that we well-intentioned white women were doing was valuable, but it was not doing the trick. And that by you know, allowing poverty to be a proxy for race, we're avoiding the central issue. And that only by tackling it head on were we going to make some progress. And I think that Graustein has come to the same conclusion. Well, I don't think that this work can be done unless there's a majority of people of color leading the work. And that's been the, the principle of our racial justice coalition. 
And let me tell you, it is opening the eyes of us well-intentioned white women <laughs> to things that we never thought about before or seeing the world in ways that we never saw it before. And unless that happens, it's not going anywhere. The depth of alienation of people of color from white people, the chasm that exists seen from the other side, Seen from my side, that chasm had not existed. But seen from the other side, I understand now how deep it is. And I'm you know, beginning to get a real grasp of white privilege much more significantly with a great deal more weight and consequence than it has had ever had before. The role for white people is to get behind people of color not to step out in front and, and make all the decisions and, and design the programs and lead the way, but to step back and support people whose experience is directly relevant and whose understanding of what will work is far superior to ours. <laughs> My name is Dee Goodrich, and I work for the Connecticut Council for Philanthropy. We work with funders and grant makers across the state of Connecticut. We provide services such as networking and platforms for people to come together and convene and collaborate on their work. We also provide professional development and opportunities for learning, sometimes technical things to learn how to do their grant making craft better. But often we get into matters related to advocacy and other issues such as diversity, equity, and inclusion and other matters that we think grant makers need to know more about in order to do their grant making more effectively. So in 2017, I attended a conference and at this conference, there were several sessions of organizations like ours getting together to just have some lightly structured conversations about racial equity work happening both within our own organizations and our own staff and boards and also with our members, uh, grant makers and foundations. And one person of color kind of threw a general question out and said, you know, I keep hearing from everybody in the room who's white, how scared you are to engage this work. Like, what are you afraid of? And no one said a word. And I said, all right, I'm going to put myself out there. And I raised my hand and I started explaining, I'm so concerned about saying the wrong thing. I'm so concerned about diving into work I don't completely understand and getting it wrong and inadvertently offending. And I went through a, a list and she listened very intently. And then when I was done, she took a moment and with wonderful compassion, she basically repeated everything I said back to me and said, these are all sort of vestiges of, of, of a dominant culture. And I had never even heard anything like that before. I, I just hadn't. And it just, it blew my mind. And, and she did it in such a way that I didn't feel defensive, but it just opened up this portal in my brain and really started me on a journey of thinking about things differently. 
through those exchanges, as uncomfortable as they were, I have started getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, knowing that that's an important part of the journey. And I'm not always going to get everything right, but I also know I have my own work to do. And I feel very privileged to be a part of an organization that really wants to get involved and to dive deep and also eventually to be able to model work for others as Graustein has modeled that work for us. Graustein has been a member of CCP, I believe, since the mid-1990s, and uh, they were very pivotal in working with us to introduce us to other grant makers and really expanding our geography in order for us to work together more broadly with other organizations. I came on board to CCP just about two and a half years ago, and the first thing that I learned about Graustein is how pivotal they are in bringing people together. But then I began to delve deeper, and when I went to some conferences for other philanthropy-serving organizations, I started seeing uh, the Graustein name pop up as being supporters of a lot of other work that was happening nationally, especially around issues related to equity. And I knew that they were going through some kind of a, of a mission change, but I didn't really understand it until I started seeing, you know, how they were supporting equity work in various ways across the country. So one way that the Connecticut Council for Philanthropy is taking this journey and doing this work would be the conference that we did in 2018, which had the theme of disruptive leadership. We wanted to bring some challenging ideas to our members, thinking about things beyond just writing the check, but looking more in depth at opportunities like advocacy and youth leadership and youth organizing, and really thinking about the work that they do and how it really needs to be in partnership with their nonprofit partners. We should be thinking about nonprofit partners as a more equitable term to really start to move that power differential and really ensure that people are thinking about how to have equal places at the table from the beginning, figure out how are we going to work together to figure out solutions for the long term. My name is Megan Parrott. I am from Step Up New London. Step Up New London primarily works with parents to build the capacity with parent organizing and parent voice and parent power. We have a history of organizing around education, but that's not our primary focus. I don't want it to be because so many systems are so interlocked and we're trying to build a base of parents. So if they come in, I want to be able to support what they're organizing around. I think like any parent kind of feels like you want to do more, but not know how. I remember having access to this um, training, Parent Leadership Training Institute. I thought I'd go in and feel like, oh, I could be a better parent. But then I really realized to be a better parent also means to use your voice, not realizing that at some point I had been silenced. Around that time of like really learning about why it is that I was experiencing what I was experiencing, why it was that my family was going through what they're going through, poverty, homelessness, food insecurity, the more I learned was that, oh, there's not enough people actually voicing these things. And then oftentimes we feel alone. And I felt very isolated. And so when I came through it, it was just not wanting to feel alone. And knowing that the more people I interacted with, they were having the same experiences and they felt alone. 
And so it was really trying to figure out like, how do we build a base in New London of the people who are going through it to like push back. With parent organizing, the reason why it's important is oftentimes we've been told we're not doing enough and we're doing as much as we possibly can. And I think when we're talking about building the power of parents, particularly parents of color, we don't hear that we're good enough. Graustein was the first fund or like foundation to kind of leap with us. Um, so when I met, I met with David Adams, right? And um, so well, what do you need? I was like, I need money, <laughs> but I need flexibility. I had worked in a nonprofit to understand how grants work and that this deadline you have to meet these outcomes. And I can't promise that per, primarily because I work with parents, one, and parents of color. So I may want to be somewhere in about a year, but I can't promise that, right? So I feel like Graustein has literally supported us in the, the merging of creating something. My suggestion would be like, keep doing that. <laughs> keep doing that, yo. <laughs> My name is Jeremy Cajigas. So the work I do with the Citywide Youth Coalition, I am their lead school organizer, um, and I work particularly with high school students around helping them basically develop leaders um, and also help them realize some of the issues that they face and how to help them organize around those specific issues. The work is important to me being a recent high school graduate um, and going through the New Haven public school system um, and growing up in the system, there was a lot of stuff that I didn't realize were wrong with the system until I got into my high school years and I realized that I often didn't have an outlet to speak out about these issues and a lot of the time speaking out about the issue was only like within the school um, until I came across the Citywide Youth Coalition. So now for me, it's creating that opportunity for other young people to be able to come out and share their experiences and also speak out against the injustices that they face. So some of the injustices for me, um, and like some of the most shocking experiences were um, like the blatant racism from some of the teachers um, and hearing teachers make comments like if Trayvon Martin was walking down my street, I would have shot him or um, you're too dark to be seen in the moonlight. Those were comments that really just stuck with me and really just threw me off during um, my high school experience, like hearing that from teachers um, who you would never expect to hear that from. So emotionally, when I first experienced this, um, I was very angry um, and I found myself in like a constant um, state of anger and rage. Um, and I, I didn't know exactly how to deal with it. And that anger and rage led into depression. And um, I was like constantly just blocking people out because I didn't want to hear what people had to say. Um, and it, it brought me to the point my early stage in high school where I, I didn't want to address the issue um, and even though I was at a school where it was like yeah let's talk about social justice um, but I, I was scared to touch on it because I didn't know how what I had to say would be received. Well we work with youth to address these issues through bringing them into the understanding of how racism has been molded into our education system um, and how racism is literally embedded in every system within the United States. And we put them through our undoing racism training. Then we get into like the deeper work of 
okay, so how do we dismantle this within our education system? How do we break this down? And exactly what areas do we need to target? Going through undoing racism and getting the understanding, um, it sort of was like an aha moment and the, I know I'm not crazy. And I, I often hear that from people who go through the training and get the wording, like, I knew I wasn't crazy. I was just very empowered going through that training. Um, and it just gave me the vocabulary that I needed to talk about the issues. So going through um, and learning all of this really took me away from targeting people specifically um, and learning that it's not a specific person, but it's an entire system. It's very helpful to move away from individual to systemic because the only way that we can create actual change is by addressing the system. And then through the change in that system, we change the way that our teachers are um, brought up and how our teachers teach our students. So as much as we would like to attack just one person, um, one person will not create the whole change for the entire system. My name is Malachi. I'm nine years old. Kids should have an equal education and they all should learn stuff. My teacher that I have, she's called Miss Joe. She's a great teacher. She like has time like where she tells jokes sometimes and it makes us laugh in those funny moments. And sometimes when we do math together, sometimes we have fun together. And sometimes some of those math problems are kind of hard. But when, when they're kind of hard, it's kind of like, funny because you're like learning a lot of new stuff about it need a little silliness so you can get focused like like if you f have fear sometimes you will have a hard time doing it but if you have but if you're not feared doing it then you might get it right with no help sometimes some things don't feel fair because sometimes when a teacher like they yell at some things like they yell and say that that you did this thing like once when I came in from the class and a ball fell right when I came in and then the, the whole class said that I threw it up when I when I came in but I really didn't and they wouldn't believe me. I would like her like give another chance or something or figure out or believe me for once. To learn more about the Storyscape exhibit and hear more stories that were part of this project, as well as see photos of the people in this episode, go to thetableunderground.com. Some of the story shorts you heard today were edited by the talented Teresa Tate and Ben James. All stories were engineered by James Cookson and produced by me, Tegan Engel. Many thanks to the William Casper Grousty Memorial Fund for permission to air these stories and for supporting story sharing as an important tool for liberation. Thanks to The Passion Hi-Fi for our theme music and the extra song for today's show. You can find them at thepassionhifi.com. Check out thetableunderground.com to find past episodes, articles, recipes, and more. You can follow us on all the social medias, and we're available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tegan Engel. Thanks for listening to The Table Underground. <laughs>